The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. The Korean word for working yourself to death is guarosa. The Japanese is karoshi. And the American word for working yourself to death is just working yourself to death. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Olshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. This week, we're discussing new ideas about how we work. The pandemic showed many of us that it's possible to work from home. But that's not the only change the workforce has seen. In other countries, and now here in the U.S., companies are experimenting with the four-day work week. Some of these changes are taking place because of the way people adapted to working during COVID. But many of them are happening now because it's been harder for some businesses to find the workers they need. A flexible or modified work schedule is one benefit employers can offer to make jobs more appealing to workers. According to a study by the nonprofit Four Day Week Global, 63% of businesses who implemented a four day work week found it easier to attract and retain talent. And 78% of employees with a four day work week said they were happier and less stressed out. COVID changed the four day week conversation and the movement in a couple ways. That's Alex Sujung Kim Pong, author of the book Shorter Work Better, Smarter, and Less. He says it took a pandemic to show companies that they could work differently and that if they wanted to retain their employees, they'd have to. First of all, it made clear to lots of businesses that they were capable of changing more radically, more quickly than they ever thought possible. I've had plenty of conversations with company founders or leaders who said two years ago, work from home was the hill I would die on. I absolutely knew that it could never work in my company, and my employees proved me wrong in three weeks. And I think lots of companies now have to ask themselves, why do we do things this way? Can we do things differently? And certainly, lots and lots of employees are insisting that it is possible to work differently and to work better. The second thing that's happened is that the move to remote work has made companies invest in collaboration tools, in remote work technologies, and has also encouraged managers to give workers more responsibility over their own time. Of course, this work-from-home shift hasn't happened for everyone. Essential workers, gig workers, hourly workers, most of them were and still are expected to show up in person and not on their own schedule. But for many workers in traditional office jobs, the future of work could be pretty wide open. The move to a four-day work week seems to be gaining ground. The pandemic is changing almost every aspect of work, and it might even make our weekends longer. The idea of a four-day work week is picking up steam. In practical terms, the challenge is how to keep up productivity while reducing hours to improve workers' job satisfaction and avoid burnout. Companies don't want less output and workers don't want less pay. The four-day workweek movement is about finding ways 
for individuals and for companies to work fewer hours without cutting salaries, without reducing productivity or sacrificing customer satisfaction or otherwise harming your business. And it's about figuring out ways of working more effectively, using technologies in ways that empower workers and allow them to do their best and most interesting work, and figuring out ways for everybody to work together so that everybody can enjoy a three-day weekend every week. Iceland is one country that has experimented with a shorter work week. In a four-year trial there, productivity remained about the same in most workplaces, which included preschools, offices, social service providers, and hospitals. Though in the healthcare sector, the government did need to hire more workers to cover all of the needed shifts. 86% of Iceland's workforce now has the right to work a shorter week, about 35 hours in many cases. Workers report feeling less stressed, their work-life balance has improved, and they have more time to spend with their families. A four-day work week sounds revolutionary, but so did the 40-hour work week at one time. Just like until very recently, so did working from home. A reasonable profit can be earned, while at the same time protection can be assured to guarantee to labor adequate pay and proper conditions of work. That's FDR in 1933. But regulating labor standards and hours goes back even further to the Industrial Revolution. In the late 18th century and early 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, for all its seeming technological advances, actually led to an increase in the number of hours that workers put in to work. Harvey Kay is an author and professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. It was not unusual for the working class, that would have been not simply men, but women and children as well, to work anywhere from 72 to, believe it or not, 100 hours a week. Back then, the concept of the weekend didn't exist. But workers found a way to create their own version without calling it another day off. They had a practice that came out of the medieval and late medieval times. It was called Blue Monday, which meant that they would show up on Monday with the idea that they were going to clean the tools they had used last week. They were going to reconnect with their fellow workers. It was a day of sort of camaraderie and preparation. It wasn't until after the Civil War that there were serious calls for a reduction of the work week. That's when we got the eight-hour workday we're used to now. Around the same time, in 1869, the first American labor union was founded. It was called the Knights of Labor. President Ulysses S. Grant, in 1869, proclaimed, I guess this was a version of an executive order, that federal employees would work eight hours a day. Though there hadn't been much momentum for the eight-hour workday nationally, once it was in place for government employees, the concept caught on. It takes quite a while to have an effect. In the 1890s and early, very early 1900s, it's first the Carpenters Union secures the eight-hour day. The final push came from Henry Ford in the 1920s. Here's Alex Sujung Kimpong again. In 1926, the assembly line went to an eight-hour day and began to really change the way that working hours operated in America. At Ford, they'd studied it, they'd figured out what worked, and then they took those learnings and applied them in another department, on the assembly line, which was the beating heart of the company and which absolutely had to work well in order for everything else to work. 
According to Harvey Kay, Ford's real goal wasn't to reduce hours for his workers, but to have his factories running 24 hours a day. He had in mind not an eight-hour workday, but three eight-hour workdays in consecutive shifts. FDR, on the other hand, seemed to have workers' quality of life in mind. In 1932, Franklin Roosevelt wins the presidency. He creates a new liberalism in America, which we would today probably compare to social democracy. He includes the first ever national minimum wage. He actually says no company should be allowed to operate in the United States that does not pay a living wage. FDR hoped that guaranteeing better work conditions would allow workers time for family and social life. But that's not really what ended up happening. I use the term the overworked American to talk about what happened after the Second World War. That's Juliet Shore. She's an economist and sociologist at Boston College and is conducting research trials on the four-day work week. After the Second World War, that process stalled out in the United States in a way that didn't happen in Europe. We were the leader in work time reduction beginning in the 19th century. We got the Sunday off, Saturday off, shorter hours before European countries did. Today, in addition to public holidays, Germany, France, Spain, and the UK legally guarantee 30 days of paid vacation. By contrast, the US doesn't mandate any paid vacation and doesn't require paid time off for national holidays. In the 70s, you start to see increases in average annual hours of work in the US. There were all these predictions that by 1975, we were going to have a four-day work week or a 20-hour-a-week schedule because of all the productivity growth. But what happened was women, particularly married women, started working much more, and their partners' hours didn't fall. With this upward shift in the number of work hours, over the next couple of decades, people across the political spectrum started to ask what we could do about the increase. There was widespread interest in shorter work, an idea that Americans were overworked. It spanned the political spectrum, which was very interesting. It had a resonance for both liberals and conservatives. Conservatives may be about family values and liberals, a sort of long-standing labor critique of capitalism making us work too hard. By the 1990s and 2000s, that all changed liberal economists were thinking much more about wages and inequality and somehow the idea that we could work less just went off their radar and for conservatives it was work hard and now we're back again the pandemic has been absolutely central to this because it dramatically changed how people are thinking about work not just where they work stephanie there's a famous prediction made by the economist john maynard keynes I think it was almost a century ago, and he said that by the year 2030, we'd all only be working 15 hours a week. So tell us what led him to that conclusion, and why do you think we never quite got there? So during the Great Depression, all this unemployment and deprivation, and Keynes says, yeah, but 100 years from now, because technology is going to advance and we're going to have the accumulation of capital. And basically, Keynes thought that there would be almost nothing left to do in some sense, that people would be able to enjoy so much more leisure because it would be pretty easy to just meet life's basic needs with very little work. And so the big problem that he was wrestling with was how should people spend their time when there's not all that much work left to do? 
So he said, you know, we don't want people so bored that they become psychologically impaired. They want to feel like they're productive in some way that they have things to do every day when they wake up. So he kind of thought about how we could share the work. And he imagined that maybe a 15-hour work week was about all we would be faced with by the year 2030. He sort of assumed that technological progress would mean more free time, whereas what it's really done is given us Slack and uh, email and all these things that make our lives more insane. Yeah, we're still most of us working at least eight hours a day, and we've almost reached the year 2030. So I don't think the world looks anything like what Keynes imagined almost 100 years ago. So is Keynes's dream that we'll all be able to work a much shorter week by 2030 even possible? And what would it take to get there? More on that after the break. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard about the history of the eight-hour workday and how the work week evolved into what we have today. If the future is a reimagined work week, how do we make the transition? What we have seen in recent decades is that five-day work week is becoming less and less tenable for families. Heidi Sherholtz is president of the Economic Policy Institute and former chief economist at the Department of Labor. We know that in the earlier period when there was conversations about a five-day work week, that was a time when people's work didn't follow them home. That you did your job and then went home and you had really, really clear delineation, clear time for your family, for civic engagement. That clear delineation has been eroded by the very thing that is supposed to save us time and labor, technology. With the advent of smartphones, email, Slack, and Zoom, it's possible that each of us winds up like one of Henry Ford's factories running 24 hours a day. The fact that we can carry our offices around in our pockets and be always on and always accessible has turned into a demand that we become always on and always accessible. Author and consultant Alex Sujung Kimpong says it's also the kind of work we do now that's helped blur these lines between work and home life. As we've also moved from being more of a manufacturing and agricultural economy to one that is sort of professional and services-based, that has eliminated some of the boundaries that have separated work life and personal life. Most of us do not put down our tools when the sun goes down or the whistle blows. And especially in an increasingly competitive economy that offers larger amounts of freelance and gig work to everybody from ride-hailing service drivers to adjunct professors at Ivy League universities, the imperative now is that you can be always on, so you really have to be always on. And when you're always on, it's really hard to keep up with life's non-work demands. Here's Heidi Sherholtz again. 
we're realizing that five-day structure isn't really working for a lot of people right now. So it's time to make an adjustment. And in many ways, that four-day work week would provide the work-life balance that people need. We wondered, what would people do with an extra day off a week? So we asked around. I probably would volunteer. I'd do more hiking, more camping, and travel more. I would probably spend more time rock climbing and riding my motorcycle. I think I would just become a better guitar player. As people head back to the office, or not, the four-day work week does seem to be an idea that's gaining traction. But something about it can feel counterintuitive. Could this model really be as profitable and productive as putting in the long hours we've grown used to? Is this new idea too good to be true? Juliet Shore says it's not. What we find with all the individual company cases that we've seen is that giving people a four-day work week dramatically reduces their stress levels, their burnout, it improves their work-life balance, it improves their overall health and well-being. And what we're seeing in a lot of companies is people are actually able to do five days of work in four days. There are fewer sick days taken. There's less absenteeism and personal days. Blue Street Capital is a tech financing company that implemented a five-hour workday for all of their employees back in 2016. CEO David Rhodes told us how it worked for them. We saw it as a way to get super focused and get more out of our own productivity on a daily basis. The way we structured it is we didn't change compensation at all. We just said, hey, we're going to move to this time frame. We still expect you to get your job done and fulfill all your duties during that period of time. When we went from 40 to 25 hours, we didn't change a thing. So effectively, our employees were almost getting 40% pay raise. It's been an excellent recruiting tool for us. So what do I do with the extra time? Gosh, I filled it up pretty quick. I spend a lot of time with my family. I'm a big surfer, so I surf quite a bit. How do companies actually go about moving from a five-day week to a four-day week? It might not be as hard as you imagine. Studies show that most workers lose around two or three hours of productive time every day to distractions and multitasking. The one quick question that turns into a five-minute conversation, meetings that are overly long and kind of pointless. If you can get a handle on these things, you can go a long way to clearing the ground to doing five days worth of work in four. Companies will be more thoughtful about how they use technology or how they encourage people to use technology, which means stuff like giving people permission to check their email twice a day rather than having 17 tabs open. Alex Sujung Kimpong says it's not a matter of reinventing the work week we have now as much as it's just cleaning out the clutter. By doing all of these things, companies discover that the four-day week is actually already here. It's just buried underneath this rubble of bad management and bad meetings and outmoded processes. Beyond the decrease in burnout and giving us some extra free time, proponents say changing to a four-day work week could benefit a lot of people who struggle to make their lives fit the current model. Often professional women who struggle to return to the workforce find their careers and their salaries stalling out after they have children. In four-day week companies, motherhood is not something for which workers pay a penalty. While we've tried flexible hours, job sharing, and other alternatives to the traditional 40-hour workweek, the four-day workweek might have some distinct advantages that those other options don't. We tend to think of issues around productivity and work-life balance 
as not just individual, but private. And what four-day week companies show actually is that solving these problems together is really, really powerful. And it also eliminates what sociologists call flexibility stigma, which is the kind of enduring sense that the people who are on flexible work are not quite as committed and dedicated to their work as the people who are still sleeping under their desks. When you move to a four-day week, you don't have that problem because everybody is moving to a shorter work week and everybody has to work together in order to make a shorter work week a success. So I think the biggest difference between flexible work and a four-day week is that with flexible work, everybody has to figure it out for themselves. With a four-day week, on the other hand, it's an organizational solution in which everybody works together in order to make it a success. And there were benefits both for people and for the company. Though some of the impetus to move to a shorter work week is coming from companies, we're also beginning to see interest on the government side. Here's Juliet Shore again. So you've got this group of innovating companies. You also have people in the political world who are interested in it. Mark Takano, a congressional representative from California, wants to change the standard work week. The New York State Senate is actually interested in maybe transitioning its workers to a four-day schedule. I'm hearing from politicians around the country who are interested. The trial that I'm doing in Ireland has research being funded by the Irish government, and the Spanish government has just announced a trial where they're going to be subsidizing employers who go to a four-day work week. The Scottish government has also announced a four-day week trial. So we're seeing it happen both from the governmental side as well as the business side. While these innovations to rethink the work week are starting to change things for traditional salaried workers, they don't really offer a solution for people who work hourly or who do unpaid work like caring for children, parents, or other dependents. That unpaid work is a hugely important kind of underpinning of everything that we do. So there are terrible social consequences to starving the unpaid sectors of the economy. In some cases, limiting weekly hours can actually hurt people in non-salaried jobs. Here's Alex Sujung Kim Pong again. Korea implemented a cap on weekly working hours that turns out to have had benefits for salaried workers, but has been detrimental to hourly workers because effectively it meant that hourly workers are challenged to pick up enough work during the week to pay for you know, living in expensive places like Seoul. And some experts like Harvey Kay doubt we can actually make these big structural changes. We couldn't even get a $15 minimum wage enacted last year. So it's striking to me to try to push for a four-day work week. I could imagine certain categories of working people would love it and vast others would literally despise any legislator who proposed it without first addressing the utterly gross inequalities that have emerged. So most of what we've been talking about applies to white-collar professionals. But if you're, say, a hairdresser, how much does this really apply? Like, you can only cut so many heads of hair in four hours a day, right? I mean, unless you're Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> <laughs> so to do that for every profession would require a complete rejiggering of, you know, the workforce. For a lot of jobs, especially probably in the service sector, reducing the number of hours that some workers are working each week will require hiring more workers to fill in the gaps. 
And if we really wanted to keep everyone's pay as high as it was when they were working the traditional 40-hour work week, say, that's going to be a huge increase in cost to employers. The thing it comes down to is productivity. If you can give workers a shorter work week and they become more productive, then it's in the employer's interest. It doesn't pose the same kind of financial challenge for employers. But in certain occupations, nursing, haircutting, teaching, and other sorts of occupations, you can't just reduce the number of hours and expect the job to still get performed. Almost nothing good has come out of the past couple of years with the pandemic. But the fact that it's forced this rethinking of so much of our lives, I think there's huge value in questioning all of this and trying new things. The point is that there's nothing sacred, as we heard from the history of the 40-hour work week or the five-day work week. All of this is kind of arbitrary, and, you know, we should be questioning it and rethinking it. Alex Sujung Kimpong thinks the main obstacle we have right now doesn't come from employers or workers, it comes from algorithms. It's algorithms in the gig economy, right? Companies that have organized themselves around the idea that labor should be incredibly flexible. And they've figured out how to make a lot of money on zero hours contracts, calling gig workers consultants or partners or, you know, or whatever. And they assume that there is an essentially infinite labor supply of you know, low skilled disposable workers. These are companies that are not going to be very interested in doing the work that improves labor conditions. The movement for a four-day work week argues for prioritizing quality of life for workers rather than viewing them as disposable. We see more time available for family, for hobbies, more time for things like professional development. When I ask people what they do with their free time, the answers are disgustingly wholesome. People spend more time with family, they do community stuff. As one founder put it, what people do with their free time is they care. They care for themselves, they care for their families, they care for others. Reimagining the work week is a new idea that could massively change our lives. It's not about giving people more time to do nothing and just laze around, but more time to do what we care about most, pursuing hobbies, being more involved in our communities, spending more time with our families. These are the possibilities a shortened work week could open up. And if it's true that productivity can stay the same, then you could be getting a raise in both money and time. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney@marketwatch.com. Thanks to Alex Sujung Kimpong, Juliet Shore, Harvey Kay, David Rhodes, and Heidi Scherholz. To learn more about the future of work, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelp. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers. And our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Melissa Pons. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. 
We'll be back next week with another new idea. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.